What if I told you that there's a cure for chronic pain? Yes, for that pain you were told you would just have to manage. And what if I told you that that cure is already inside of you? Would you believe me? Welcome to the Let's Talk Mind Body Healing podcast, where we talk about how to truly alleviate chronic suffering. I'm your host, Felicia Jaramus, and today you're listening to episode number 23. And that means that I did it. I released one episode every month for the entire year, despite having a newborn. I'm actually really, really proud of myself that I did get one episode out every month this year, like I said I was going to. I've had some really amazing episodes and that's all thanks to the really amazing, incredible guests that have been on the show this year. But it has been a real joy for me to keep doing this, although it has been pretty tough getting it all done at times. I mean, yesterday I didn't even shower, so there you go. I think the one thing that's probably taken me by surprise the most is that it's still so very challenging uh, parenting, you know, almost well, over 10 months in now and there are still days where I don't get to have a shower. But also at the same time, hands down, this has been the best year of my life so far. So really tough, but also so incredible, so amazing. But I'm going to leave that for another time. I'm going to do start the year off next year with a solo episode talk a little bit about some of the symptoms I've had since birth, all that kind of stuff. Um, And also all things kind of mothering and TMS. I was going to do that as the last episode of this year, but time really just got away from me. But I'm hoping to sit down and record it in a couple of days so then I don't have any more excuses (laughs) and I can release it. Now it is the holiday season which can be a particularly difficult time for many people, myself included. So please don't forget to take care of yourself during this time. Know that you can say no to things and know that it doesn't have to be perfect and know that you're not alone. But don't forget to get out those journals or go for those walks in nature or go for those swims. In Australia, it's summer and the weather is really nice. We went to the beach the other day. Or meditate or spend some time just at home on your own or anything else that truly nourishes you. You've got this. But let's talk about this episode and get on to the content that you're all here for. So this episode I said I speak with Rose Covenant. I think I said that before. And she slid into my DMs, I believe, and, and, and invited me to a workshop and I said, you know, hey, why don't you just come onto the podcast instead? And then we were off. So, and I think this is a really good episode. I really like Rose's take on a lot of things. I love the way she explains the brain, the nervous system. There's so much goodness in this episode. I also love the way she talks about pain and getting hung up on this idea of pain as being a faulty danger signal when in fact sometimes there may be lingering emotional dangers and things in our lives that can also be keeping us stuck in pain and how you know I would say the vast majority of people build their life from a place of unsafety and doing this work often does mean making a lot of changes 
to kind of get out of that place of unsafety, start living something that's more authentically you. Uh, but there's a lot more there than that. Uh, it's got Rose's recovery story. It's got a lot. Uh, this episode, yeah, it's really good. But I think every guest I've had on is amazing. So, <laughs> I mean, they all bring something wonderful and special. And largely that's because they've all had their own pain recovery stories, right? When you go through it, you know it so intimately. I think there is one thing I do want to raise though and one thing that I do want to acknowledge. So at some point in this episode, Rose talks about accessing therapy and how it'll be the best investment of your time. And I 100% agree with Rose. Therapy was good therapy and finding the right therapist was the best thing I ever did for myself. But I want to acknowledge something which I don't think is acknowledged enough in this space. And that is that it can cost a lot of money and finances are a real barrier to accessing therapy or any of that kind of one-on-one support for a lot of people, right? Particularly people who are in so much pain that they can't work. So please remember that therapy or any form of one-on-one help is not a prerequisite to getting better. Lots of people recover solely through things like journaling. Other things like, you know, meditation are also free or the apps are low cost. You know, if you do reach a point of stuckness, sometimes it may just be checking in with the right person once or twice. So there are a range of options out there for you. Talking about this is making me think that maybe one day I might run like a groups program too. I could offer things in a group setting maybe. I don't know, I have so many ideas (laughs) once I've got a little bit of time up my sleeve. But I guess it is one of those things where if you are on the fence about it, yeah, 100% recommend the therapy or the one on the one support or just to have that experience of somebody co-regulating with you and holding your nervous system in a place of safety but anyway I digress I'm going to go on to my disclaimer and then we'll move straight into the episode I hope you enjoy and I wish you all the best for the rest of the year and I can't wait to be back doing this again and talking to you again next year As always, please don't forget to follow the show if you haven't already. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram. Please reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, if you want to come onto the show. I'm always happy to talk to people in this space. It makes me, lights me up. Anyway, um, see, talk to you next time. I am a provisional psychologist with my PhD or my doctorate in education, but I'm not a medical doctor. So all of the content that I provide about mind-body healing in any medium, including but not limited to this podcast and my social media channels, is for informational purposes only. No content provided by me is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. The purpose is to promote broad understanding and knowledge of various health topics. If you choose to use any information provided by me, you do so solely at your own risk. Always seek the guidance of your doctor or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding your health or medical condition. Do not embark on a mind-body healing journey until you have the clearance from your healthcare practitioner to do so, until you have discussed how to apply mind-body healing to your own individual case. 
The methods discussed by guests on the show are not necessarily endorsed by me. Welcome to the Let's Talk Mind Body Healing Podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Jaramus, and today I'm here with the ever so lovely Rose Covenant, who is a pain-free mentor and embodiment trauma and trauma specialist. So Rose, that name is quite, I don't know, unique. I think people in this space struggle to find what to call themselves. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came up with that name and what it means to you? Amazing. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. So the components of that name for me, a pain-free mentor really signifies helping someone go through a proven method, but the mentorship piece is the art of navigating it in your real life. Like we can all read a book and understand the concepts, but understanding something analytically and actually applying it in your day-to-day life in a way where your body, mind, feels safe are two entirely different things. So there is this mentorship component. And then from the embodiment and trauma specialist, ultimately the vast majority of chronic pain, the vast majority of people that I work with, there is some emotional root, which we might call trauma. Now trauma is not all capital T trauma, but trauma is anything where your mind and body have decided, hey, something is not safe. And so ultimately peeling back those layers is part of bringing you to safety and the embodiment piece in the mind body space. We basically live in our minds, right? We're conditioned that way to feel safe to be in our mind and not feel our emotions and not feel our body. And so the body's only way to communicate, like it whispers and we don't hear it and it kind of speaks a little louder and we don't hear it. And finally it's screaming at us via symptoms. So creating this, reconnection, facilitating that connection back into the body so that we're living in the body is another big key of getting out of the pain cycle. So it's, it's a long title, but it's meaningful to me. Yeah. I love every piece of your explanation, actually, that the first part, when you're talking about mentorship and actually applying it into your real life, I think that's really, really important because you can read all of the books and know it all, but how do you actually act on it? in the context Mm. of your own. And I think the acting on it piece, it's so interesting because so many people with mind-body symptoms identify with being a high achiever, a perfectionist. And we can be in this attitude of like, right, I read the book. I can apply all the tools. I want to figure this all out myself. But it's like, it's impossible to see your own blind spots. Mm. And that same energy of, I need this to be perfect. I need to be a high achiever about this that we're not really conscious of. When we apply that to a healing journey, guess what? Our brain still feels freaked out because even if you're like, all right, I'm going to do the somatic work and the journaling and the meditation and the embodiment, but it's with this energy of like, this sensation has to go away right here, right now. And if it doesn't, I'm doing it wrong. The brain's not going to switch that off. Yeah, unless you can approach it from a kind of loving perspective, which is um, a challenge, I think, for pretty much everyone here <laughs> in this space. Challenging, yeah, for sure. Mm. So, Rose, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you entered into the mind-body space, so a little bit about 
your history with pain? Sure. So my proper pain journey, if you will, was back pain, but through these methods, I've discovered that I've actually had mind body symptoms all of my life. Mm-hmm. So you do, yeah. little, I had nausea every single night and no one could figure out what's wrong. Um, in my early twenties, I had headaches like three times a week when I started a new job and, you know, my, my big, I'm going to climb this career ladder space. I worked in public health and international development. And I just explained all of those away as like, oh yeah, I must be too much coffee or not enough. Like three headaches a week is not a normal amount of headaches, just in case that wasn't clear. And and then right before I left for my first job in West Africa, I started getting pain in my knee and I had been super active. I'd been at the gym. I thought I'd hurt myself in Zumba. I was like, okay, whatever, this is going to be fine. I went to some physical therapist, regenerative orthopedist, got an MRI, and they were like, well, we can't see anything, but we can scope it. And I was like, well, I have to get on a plane in five weeks now, so we're not going to scope my knee. Which what does as a scoping side, mean? Uh, basically insert, like, ugh. it's a small surgical procedure where they insert a camera behind your <laughs> kneecap. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I didn't want to do that. Um. Because I just thought like I had hurt myself at the gym before I'd done physical therapy, it'd gone away before. So I wasn't super worried about it. So I did all the PT, basically nothing worked fast forward a year and a half later, I'm back in the U S things are up in the air with the job. I'm in the middle of a breakup and 40 minutes on a stationary and recumbent bicycle. I wake up the next day with excruciating back pain. And of course I understood it from a physical perspective that I'd like somehow it hadn't been adjusted well and I, you know, done something. And that is what really started my proper journey with pain where I was in constant chronic pain from a four to seven on the pain scale, every single moment of every single day for six and a half years. Uh, And you name it, I tried it. Like I started with chiropractics, physical therapy, pelvic floor, physical therapy, acupuncture, meditation, regenerative orthopedics, injections, lifts in my shoes. I mean, everything. And, and during this in the, (laughs) in the true spirit of a high achiever, I continued to take contracts overseas. So Mm -hmm. I would, as you do. So I would be in Washington DC for six months to a year And then I would spend progressively longer. Uh, My first mission was a year and a half, then six months for the Ebola outbreak in Liberia, which obviously my nervous system did not appreciate me doing. I would assume it. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the least stressful thing I'd done. Um, And then I was in Niger in West Africa for three and a half years. And uh, at that point, I'd really... Part of me had hope that I would find some magical unicorn who would zap my pain away because at that point, that was the only option. I was like, I've been to all the doctors. I've done all the things. I've stretched it. I've rested it. I've iced it. I've heated it. I've, you know, Mm. all the things. And because of COVID, I ended up on a plane back to the US. I didn't anticipate staying. I thought I'd be in the US for like a month. And that was a big change in my life. I went on Instagram because I'd been off social media for security reasons with 
the work that I was doing mm -hmm. in public health and um, maternal and child health. And so I saw this post talking about curing chronic pain. And I was so angry because I just thought this is total BS. Like if there was a cure for chronic pain, I would know about it. I have a master's in public health, like, come on. And long story short, that's what started my journey of understanding neuroplastic pain, the mind body space, and that my pain was real, but there was nothing wrong in my body. And when I first read, you know, how we all read the, like, this is a normal person with neuroplastic pain. They're an overachiever and, uh, you know, care about pleasing other people and et cetera, et cetera. I was like, oh, rocky childhood. Oh, oh. It was so clear the moment that I read anything about the mind-body space that it was me. Um, and then it took a few months of believing that it could happen because I was so afraid that it wouldn't work because it really felt like this is the last thing. This is the last stop on the bus. And after this, you really will be in pain forever. So I avoided doing the work. Classic. And um, yeah, one day in the shower, I was listening to recovery stories and it finally broke, like broke through my analytical brain into my heart and gut. Like, hey, you have the exact same story as these people. Like mm -hmm. there's no reason why you can't recover from pain. So I did recover from pain and then went on to train as a practitioner to be able to help other people do the same. Wow. What a story. What a journey you've had. <laughs> it was a journey, a journey for sure. But where I am now, I can look back and honestly say I'm grateful that my body turned on the pain signal because I was in emotional danger. And if I hadn't have had the pain, if I hadn't done the trauma healing work, the embodiment work, the somatic work, the mindfulness work, the emotional reprocessing work, I would just be a, a less full version of myself. I would still just be in survival all the time because I was living in survival all my life until this journey. Like I didn't understand what it meant to be embodied because I was so far out of my body all the time. I like that. I didn't understand what it meant to be embodied. Did you think you'd still be climbing that career ladder? Yes, 100%. I mean, that was my plan to continue Working in West Africa, when I left Niger, I was a country director of a big public health NGO making big health impact. And that was very rewarding in other ways to be able to bring family planning, HIV treatment and prevention, malaria prevention and treatment to millions of people. Mm -hmm. And I also know that my nervous system didn't feel safe and doesn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> My passion really now is to help people with that art piece, like to move beyond the science of pain recovery and into that art of applying it in your life. And what I say to people who jump into mentorship with me, the pain will go away as a happy consequence of the inner work that you'll do, of the inner work to feel safe in your body, to feel loved and whole and worthy as you are, to feel comfortable with all of your emotions, 
the pain will go away as a happy consequence. It's not like attacking the pain until it, <laughs> until you can vanquish it. That's, that's not really what we do. So the art of applying it in your life, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Mm. One of the biggest things that is an awareness point for me and for clients I work with is how hard we are on ourselves, Mm. like the lack of compassion we have for ourselves. And that lens is really what gets applied to everything that we do in life, including our healing journey. So as I mentioned earlier, if we're doing, you know, quote, doing all the things, but with this energy of, I should be further along than I am. This pain should have gone away by now. I should be able to do it by myself. That resistance, that tension in the system just amplifies the fear. And so for many people I work with, the first layer is accepting where we are, even if we don't like it, even if it's really uncomfortable. And I don't just mean with sensations, I mean emotionally. Because we, as we start to become conscious of our inner world, all of those sub vocal conversations we're having with ourselves all the time, we start to actually be aware of our thoughts instead of just identifying with them. We can discover that we're quite hard on ourselves. We're quite mean to ourselves. And we're, we're always painting success somewhere else. Like we make a goal, we reach it and we're like, oh, well, whatever, next goal. And the art of applying the mind-body approach is having the compassion and love for yourself to create a safe container through which all of those scary emotions can flow. And what I found in my journey and for others is creating that safe container a key component of that, at least in the beginning, is often co-regulation. So finding someone that you feel safe with, that you can do the emotional work with, who can hold you in the times when you feel like you are falling apart. And that co-regulation piece, normally, and Gabor Mate has spoken a lot on this as well, Normally, in an ideal scenario, in childhood, we learn co-regulation subconsciously because we have regulated caregivers and Mm -hmm. our body learns how to take an emotional assault and come back into regulation. If you didn't learn that, and I did not. I I did not. I did not. (laughs) Did not learn that. You have to learn that. And the idea that I'm going to learn to regulate my nervous system all by myself is a trauma response because we need that. We need that safe container, whether it's working with a coach, a mentor, a therapist, whether you have a really good friend, but finding a space where you can allow yourself to go to those deep places. Because the thing about emotional pain that's stored in the body as physical pain or other symptoms, your body is doing that for a reason. It's not just willy nilly. Your body is doing that Because your body fears, if I let these emotions up, it's going to flood the system. So if you're in a place where you're trying to do this deep emotional work, but you don't authentically feel safe, held, and your mind, body, spirit, brain, nervous system, all of the components of you are confident that 
hey, if I fall all the way apart, somebody is going to be around to put me back together. Your brain is not going to let you go to those deepest, darkest emotional roots because it's actually not safe for you to do that. Yeah, something we were talking about before I hit record is you were talking about sometimes the pain is a very valid danger signal. I wonder if that nicely flows into that and you want to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So speaking now, if you are someone who has read all the books and I'm sure if you're here listening to this podcast, you are really familiar with mind body. <laughs> you know it. Yeah. This is this is not your first foray into is my pain mind body. So pain is a danger signal. Same for all of the other symptoms associated with mind-body, right? Anxiety, depression, fatigue, unexplained GI issues, the long list of things that can show up in our body when we're stuck in survival mode. And there's a lot of talk in this space around we're misinterpreting that pain signal as a damage signal. And that's completely true. Pain is just a signal that there's danger, And sometimes we can get really fixated on trying to turn that danger signal off without being conscious of, hey, maybe there are actually things in our lives that are emotionally, mentally, physically dangerous. Mm -hmm. And this is a big point of resistance I see for a lot of people approaching this work. It's like, I want the pain to go away, but I don't want to change anything in my life. I don't want to change how I think. I don't want to change how I feel. I don't want to change my relationship or my job or whatever. I want everything to stay the same, but the pain to go away. And it doesn't work like that because the life that we created, like I mentioned, I'd been having mind body symptoms since I was a child. I'd been living in survival as a child through all of my adult life up until needing this work. And I had created, and we all create lives from this lens of, Hey, I'm not safe or I'm not loved, or I'm not worthy, or I can't be my full self because people won't love me. So it's better that I wear a mask and nobody really sees me because then they'll reject me. There are these core emotional wounds and we've created these lives out of that space. So it's no wonder when we start to become conscious in our body, when we start to become conscious of our thoughts, there are going to be things in your life that are not in alignment for you, whether it's how you think about yourself. So I talk a lot about brain rewiring, whether it's actual boundaries and relationships. So one of the biggest pieces of work that I don't usually talk about that my clients do is this boundaries piece, is creating boundaries with relationships. And that includes parents, children, grandparents, bosses. It includes everyone in your world And if you're here and you're like, I couldn't possibly have a boundary with my mother, you can. I'm here to tell you. (laughs) You can say, Rose said, I have permission to have a boundary with you. And those things are scary. It's super scary because it pushes up against primal survival factors. We can get really in our head about all of this stuff. And to frame it in a way that this brain and nervous system, this current hardware, if you will, is 200,000 years old, 200,000 years old. This thing was built when we were in villages and it was trying to tell us if there were a lot of tigers in the village or not. 
It wasn't built for social media. It wasn't built for email. It wasn't built for a pace of life where you can just have a conversation with anyone like we're doing now. This system yeah, wasn't, it built. wasn't built for the constant emotional threats that we face. Exactly. And the life that we build when we are in a place of survival, we allow people to treat us in certain ways. We allow jobs to zap our energy in certain ways. We allow a certain amount of things in our life that are completely unaligned, friends that drain us and never pour into us, for example. Mm. And that feels safe because our brain feels like that's the best it can do, right? It's trying to secure the system. And so as you're going through this journey of healing from pain or other mind-body symptoms, there is very likely a time when you're going to be confronted with some potentially big changes to make in your life. And this is another callback to that co-regulation to finding someone to support you on this journey, because it's scary. When I was going through this journey, I left a career. I left a marriage. And I'm not saying if you're here, the only way to get out of pain is to, you know, quit your job. <laughs> <and leave> your <laughs> I, I have seen it happen. I have had clients that have been engaged and decided to break off the engagement and are now pain-free and happily married to someone else years down the line. Mm -hmm. I've seen clients come in who have a job that is super emotionally taxing. And in the beginning, when we start the work, they can't even imagine getting out of it. And by the end, it's so clear that that had to go because it's traumatizing their system day, day over day. Yeah, I was the same. I left a career. I put up boundaries with family. I lost a few Ooh. friends, like all of those sorts of things I had to do to get myself out of pain. It was huge shifts for me. And also I had to change my personality. I couldn't no longer do the people pleasing. I could no longer be the perfectionist. Like huge changes have to come on board. That's why I think yeah. I really like your concept that it's a valid signal because we often as, as you were saying in this space it's often seen as a like incorrect interpretation of signals and you do enough somatic tracking and it will go away because you can reinterpret these signals but I don't think it works that way a lot of the time <laughs> like it does not and the thing that's beautiful in the journey if we can allow it to be beautiful is that we get to be new like we have all these concepts. People come to me and they're like, oh, well, I'm anxious and I'm this and I'm that and I'm a high achiever. Yeah, no, you you're not. the labels. You remove your labels. Right. These are survival patterns because at some point when you were five years old, you got a gold star and you went home and your parents were like, yay, that's amazing. And your brain is like gold star equals love. Boom. Locked in. <laughs> right. All of these things that we think of as us, and this is another reason why it can be so scary to try to do this work on your own, is you are literally deconstructing an identity and reconstructing a new identity. And this is not like affirming like, I'm strong and happy, I'm strong and happy, I'm strong. And if you don't believe that, your brain is going to kick that right out. But at that subconscious cellular level, if you will peeling back the layers of what is survival, this high achiever perspective, this perfectionist, this people pleaser, this overgiver, this over responsibility taker, like these things aren't you. 
getting back to your purest, authentic essence, if you will, is such an important component, not just of recovering from pain, because that's a happy consequence of you living in your safety, freedom, and power. And that means you might be making changes internally, you might be making changes externally, but whatever you need to do to get back to a place of feeling good in your mind and your body, you deserve to do it. And that deserving and worthiness piece is so big as well. If I think back to myself and the version of myself that was in pain, it was hard for me to get help on the journey. I really wanted to just, you know, read the book and do the journaling and uh, have that be it. And for me, that got me to a certain point. But to get me where I am now, I've invested significantly in my healing. And I continue to do the work every single week to be able to hold space and co-regulate for other people who are going through this journey Because if I didn't continue to do the work, I would be back in pain and I would be useless to my clients for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I feel like for me at this point, it's the idea of doing the work. It's, I deserve to calibrate to my truth and safety and wholeness. Mm, And I choose to do that every single day. And whatever is showing up in my body or not, I still choose and deserve to have that level of love for myself. I'm a big lover. I am, I am, yes, I (laughs) so much love. And for so long, I would pour it into everyone else and I just didn't seem to get any. And now I'm a firm believer that I continue to be a big lover. I continue to pour a lot of love and I get first dibs. Yeah, I love that. That's really special. Talking about, I guess, self-love. One of the things you said before, you were talking about when we start doing this work, we start to learn to become aware of our thoughts instead of just identifying with them. I thought that really stood out to me as a very significant part of this journey. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Mm. This gets back to what I said earlier of, I didn't know what embodiment was. (laughs) And similar with this, the way that we experience life up into a certain point, particularly in this culture, is we are trained to hone our intellectual and analytical capacity. That's how we're trained in school. We're trained to focus on our thoughts. We're trained to memorize information and dates and and control the body. You can't go to the toilet when you need to go to the toilet. You can't eat food when you need to eat food. You have to control the body. <laughs> right. You know, ignore it, control it. Like, yeah. The body doesn't exist, only the mind exists. Yes. And we are conditioned to be in that thought space. And in the last 10, 15 years, news media has also been a big component of that. We've gone from a culture that you have a newspaper, you read it in the morning and it's done. And now we have this onslaught of external information about really terrible things happening all the time. 
And so our mental layer is constantly flooded, including in social media, which in some ways is worse than in news because it's like, cute puppy, cute puppy, cute puppy. Oh, war. Whoa. <laughs> right. It's a shock. When we go to the news, we know it's going to be bad. And so this mental layer, it's, it's like, imagine you go to a gym and your brain is the only thing lifting weights and your heart and your gut and your intuition and your body sitting on the sidelines. So we become conditioned to believe every thought that we think and to take that as us. Hmm. And as a, an interesting example, I like, I'm going to, 99.99% of women on the planet had some body image things, still have body image things. The other day I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, your waist is a little big. And I thought to myself, I caught it. And I was like, those are my bones. And the voice in my head, my self-critical voice, I named her Tracy. Tracy was like, your bones are too big. And I literally laughed out loud. I was like, wow, obviously that is just straight up survive. Your bones are too big. Really? <laughs> Tracy, for real? And this is the example of when we can notice our thoughts, we determine who's driving the bus. Mm -hmm. We determine if it's our highest loving self who knows that we're safe and loved and worthy and whole already, or if it's the fearful survival brain that's afraid of ostracism. Because again, if you even taking that small example, your bones are too big. This is coming from a 200,000 year old program of if you're not accepted in your village, you get kicked out of the village and you die. And you die. Yeah. And you die. Right. That programming is no longer relevant today, but our brain has it burned down to the circuitry. And so this journey of becoming aware of our thoughts, of not believing everything we think, we can also get more in touch with the physiologic aspect of thoughts. So you have a thought, you have the words, right? You have the emotion in your body and you have the physiology of what's happening. So for example, if you're in a really fearful state, you have a lot of cortisol, adrenaline flowing through your system. In that physiologic state, your brain is going to access thoughts associated with that state. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just the thoughts you think, it's the emotions you feel, it's how you're feeling physiologically in your body. And the physiology, once you kick that adrenaline cortisol, it takes time for those chemicals to come down in the bloodstream. And so we can get in these rabbit holes, these thinkathons where we're a little bit fearful. We have a fearful thought. Let's say we have a meeting with our boss later and they're like, oh, we need to talk to you. If you're in a good emotional state, if you're in a happy, joyful, you're like, oh, maybe they're giving me a promotion. Maybe <laughs> they're going to send me on a retreat to Tahiti. Maybe if you're in a fearful state, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. If I lose my job, I'm going to lose my house. If I got to, it's the thoughts that we think are dependent on the overall state that we're in, the mental, emotional, physiologic state that we're in at that moment. And so as we can become aware of the thoughts, not just does that give us a window into who's driving the bus, but it lets us know what state are we in? Like you've, we've all had moments where we're like, oh, I'm feeling, my brain will still do this sometimes. Oh, I'm feeling anxious about 
work. I'm feeling anxious about work. Push that thought out, push that thought out. We're not thinking about that. And our brain's like, I'm anxious about relationships. Now I'm anxious about relationships. Like, I see what you're doing. It's that energy of anxiety, that energy of fear, doubt, whatever it is. And your brain will pick whatever subject it can get its mitts on. So whether it's relationship or work or the symptom, the pain, the your brain will be in a place where it's offering you thoughts that give you an insight into where you are in your mental, emotional, physiologic state. So becoming aware of them, we can then notice that. And instead of beating ourselves up, like, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that, we can come to a place of compassion where, ooh, even though I my brain is presenting me this thought of this guy hasn't texted me in 32 minutes and I see that he's been online, but he hasn't texted me. And my brain is telling me maybe he hates me, right? Because the survival element, Tracy is a real, she's really trying to keep me safe all the time. I love that you've (laughs) named it. I'm going to do that for myself, actually. (laughs) Definitely should. It's so powerful. If we can just say, okay, I understand what's happening and just, I'm going to just going to put my hand on my heart and I'm just going to breathe and actually come back into my body and realize what's happening is there's a little part of me that feels insecure and in fear. And my brain is creating a narrative to keep me safe. It's creating a narrative to keep me safe, to push away a potential hurt and to be like, well, okay, this guy hasn't texted. So he probably hates me and I'm going to tell him to go away and block his number because, you know, blah, like this whole narrative. But really what it is, is there's a small, there's a part of me, this could be back to childhood or some experience in life that feels unsafe, unloved, unseen. And I can attend to that part because Mm -hmm. you never, ever, ever want to be in a place where we're dependent on that external validation for safety because your brain knows it's unsafe. The only path to true safety and love and wholeness is within yourself. And of course, we're social animals and we depend on external people for co-regulation to some extent when we're young, before we know how to do it ourselves. But that true happiness is something that's self-generated. And that can feel really scary and it can sound really hokey, like, oh, just fill your own cup and love yourself. But it's true. It sounds super hokey because we live in a culture which likes to tell you that happiness comes from buying stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to buy your way to, uh, you're not going to buy enough stuff to make yourself feel safe. It's that journey to inner wholeness, not to getting to be whole because you're already whole, you're already healed, you're already not broken. But that journey to realizing it more and more, you deserve to take that journey. You do. Take that action, whether it's with a coach, a mentor, a therapist, a book, whatever it is, that piece of action is so important. And if the voice in your head as you're listening right now is like, oh, well, maybe later I'm kind of busy. You're kind of busy. You don't have time. Like your body is screaming at you to make the time for yourself. So even if it feels like, you know, I I have a job and I have kids and I don't have the time, then that pain signal is a valid signal. It's telling you like, hey, 
you're not mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in whatever ways you have, you're not going back to the replenishment. Mm -hmm. And so make the time. If you're here, if you're listening to a podcast, you totally have the time. (laughs) Having the courage to look at the dark places within yourself is scary. So I want to honor It's very scary. Like that anger, that guilt, that shame, whatever's there. But it's there anyway. Whether you look at it or not, it's there. When you look at it, you release it. And so your brain will come up with a million, a million, yeah, a million different reasons not to look at it, a million different defenses. Right. Maybe after this next vacation, maybe (laughs) after I'm done renovating my house, maybe when my kids are old enough and go to school. Like these are all parts of the pain cycle. They're all the parts of your brain that are seeking protection of its protection mechanism. Because if your brain is turned on the pain signal or whatever symptoms you have, your brain thinks you need that protection mechanism. And so when you start pulling at the threads, your brain will likely resist you. I like that one. So before you... Hmm? I like that one, protection of the protection mechanism. It's a good one. Mm. And this is where that internal safety and self-compassion and love comes in. Because if you just jump into the mind-body work and you go directly to the emotional reprocessing and you don't feel safe and you don't feel like you have a safe container and you're not getting the support that would be helpful for you, you're not having anyone to co-regulate with, trying to dig straight in your trauma is just traumatic. Mm. You have to have that safe container externally or within yourself. And I can tell you from investing with my own mentor, the work that I've been able to do healing layers of trauma and not even all things that were just me because collectively we hold trauma, especially as women, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be so big. We shouldn't be, we should be just sexy enough, but not too sexy. We should be just spiritual enough, but not too spiritual that we're a witch. We should be attractive, but we shouldn't be a slut. We should be like all of these things. And historically it was dangerous, physically dangerous to yeah. be. And, and in many parts of the world, it still is very dangerous. And some parts of the world, I'm guessing most of the people listening to this podcast are living in parts of the world where it is safe to be your full bodacious self. Mm-hmm. We are told that we can do anything. And my life now is so radically different than anything I could have ever imagined. I no longer work nine to five. Mm-hmm. I work with my clients two days a week. And the other five days I live my life. Yeah. I spend, I, I meditate, I play ukulele, I travel, I have conversations, I drink coffees, <laughs> I have adventures. And it's that balance is something I never could have imagined before because I wouldn't have felt like I was doing enough. And now I know for me to show up and create and hold that safe space and energy for my clients to be able to do this work in deep, fast ways. That's the only way I can show up for them is to spend 
a lot of time in my own energy, regulating mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. And myself takes a lot of filling as it appears. <laughs> you and me both, you and me both, don't worry. <laughs> There's a bit of a backlog. The the self-love has a, a lot of a lot of nooks and crannies to fill in. And for me, a, a key lesson, a, a key miss lesson, if you will, that I learned in childhood was looking for safety and validation from a man. That was a big thing for me. My mother was married five or six times and it was all this focus on that as the path to safety. And so obviously from the time I was 15, I lived in that world of feeling like that was the only path to safety and that will make you feel crazy. I mean, I definitely felt crazy is a quite loaded word, feel quite insecure, shall we say. Mm. And everyone has a different flavor of what that emotional root is. I think a lot of women have very similar routes of people pleasing, feeling insecure on our own, needing to pour into other people to validate ourselves. And you're valid just for breathing, just for existing, just yeah. being on the planet. That's enough. <laughs> Yep, you're valid just because you exist. I always say that. You look at other people and you think they're all worthy. They all have worth. Like you have just as much worth just because you exist, just because you are. You don't look at a baby and you're like, oh, prove yourself. Do something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> obviously. And so I treat yourself in another way. Yeah, trust me, I've got a baby. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> loves a baby. <laughs> <laughs> they're not demanding that baby to prove its worthiness. And everyone, oh, you're such a little angel. And it's like, oh, come on, what about me? <laughs> you're such a little angel. You're such Thank a big you. angel. Thank mm -hmm. you. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to, um, you spoke a little bit about the concept of the heart and the gut and the intuition and the body. Tell me a little bit about what it means to connect into those things and what it means to kind of live by those things rather than your mind. So maybe for people who have probably never connected into those things. Oh, that's such a beautiful question. So if you're someone who's never connected into those things, just know that what I'm about to explain is going to sound like made up magic. Mm -hmm. uh, but this <laughs> whole thing sounds like made up magic. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. It totally does. Just love yourself. So we're conditioned to think with the mind and to make decisions based on thoughts. So we take ourselves down all of these narrative paths to try to get the quote, right answer. And this is classic polarized thinking, right? There's a right and there's a wrong and there's a black and there's a white. And we have to figure out with our brains, which one is the right path and which one is the wrong path or else. So what we miss in that is that we are at a subconscious level taking in way more information than we're conscious of. Mm -hmm. And at a subconscious level, we have access to way more information. And all of that is held in the body. 
I think as an example of that, actually, there was a study I think they did where they put a little spider like right in the corner of your vision where you couldn't even like recognize it like consciously and people's like um, heart rate and stuff went up. So there's like stuff you, you're not even registering it, but you're taking it all in if that kind of like. Exactly. So it's like, even from a visual spectrum, there's an interesting book called Incognito by a neuroscientist and he has a lot of these super interesting studies. And one big point that he makes about is vision. So we have the perception that we look out with our physical eyes, our brains translate all of that into the picture we see. That's actually not how vision works at all. How vision works is your brain has experienced a number of living rooms, let's say. And so your brain You enter into a place, your brain says, ah, this is a living room. And it just fills in basically a hologram, a projection of what that is. Your brain only notifies you of differences between what you expect to see and what you see. Oh, how fascinating. Predictive coding. (laughs) Predictive coding. It only notifies you of the differences. So I'm looking around this room and... The things that my brain is like, oh, that's different. There's some sort of feather decoration. And so now my brain has been updated with, okay, sometimes living rooms have feather decorations. Next time I go in a room, I won't be conscious of it. And so the same way that predictive coding works, where in our visual spectrum, we have a projection of what we think is, and we're only notified of the difference. So too with our thoughts. When we have our normal, everyday, humdrum, let's say, anxious thoughts or fearful thoughts or doubtful thoughts or protective thoughts or any kind of thoughts that we're having, our brain can run those programs without a lot of consciousness on our part, mm-hmm. where our brain is like, to-do list, right? I have to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Most of the thoughts that we think are thoughts that we've thought before. They're just on loop because our brain is used to being chatty. So it always has a chat going, but a lot of that information is just repeated. So when we're in this place where I'll, I'll call us on autopilot, we're not really conscious of what's going on in our system. We're in that autopilot world. Our subconscious subroutines and our brain kind of take care of everything. Like we stress ourselves out about things, but at the end of the day, we're making all of those decisions from a mental place. And then we have pain or another symptom and we start to go on this journey and we start to discover what embodiment is. And what embodiment is, is learning that we actually have access to information that's more at a body level. So exactly as you said with the spider, we -hmm. couldn't have said, hey, there's a spider in my peripheral vision but your brain picked up enough information at a subconscious level to be like, Ooh, spider. And there's so many examples of this. I have a friend whose dad, he was just walking and all of a sudden he took a huge step and consciously he's like, Oh, that was weird. He realized when he looked down that he'd stepped over a snake. (laughs) And so your brain has so much more subconscious auto control of what's going on. You think that you make all these conscious decisions, but you don't. This is why we sometimes, we sort of become conscious in the middle of driving. We've been on autopilot for an hour 
Or we find ourselves standing in front of the fridge and we're like, why did I come here? Something in your body is like, hmm, right? <laughs> so when we're coming to this embodiment space, it's about learning to disidentify with the thoughts, to notice that the thoughts are just one component of the information that we have access to mm -hmm. and dropping into that feeling place of putting our consciousness, of sensing our consciousness in other parts of our body. So if you've done any sort of grounding activity, you felt the soles of your feet, right? You've done any sort of body scan, you felt the soles of your feet feeling up your body, into your gut, into your heart. And as you train that more, it's kind of what we talked about earlier, where it's like, your body has gone to the gym and the only thing lifting the weights is your brain. your brain. As you practice that embodiment more of holding your conscious attention and awareness in your heart, in your gut, in your solar plexus. And similar to some of the techniques you use in somatic tracking, you can ask those parts of you questions and answers will come up. Now, if it's an answer with a whole bunch of narrative, that's your brain. If it's like, oh, this, because this and this and this and this, that is the brain. That's the mental layer. But when you have those insights, those yes, no's, those little snippets, that's information that's coming from a place of being in touch with everything that your body is aware of, everything that you're subconsciously aware of, but your mind is blocked because these are all not all, but the vast majority of what's going on in our mind often are just survival patterns. Your brain is like, right, keep everything alive. Let's keep breathing. Doesn't matter if you're happy or fulfilled or in chronic pain or bedridden, but if you're breathing, that's good. We've got this, right? Coming into that heart space, it's a practice of calming your nervous system, bringing your conscious awareness to your heart, your solar plexus, your gut, and feeling into your body, how good does this feel to me? There's another author, Kyle Cease, who talks about doing things that are a full body 10. So one out of 10. So instead of just thinking, oh, I should, I don't know, eat a salad, go to a gym, write a book, whatever, and thinking yourself through it, you're creating a lot of mental resistance often because you're thinking about the thing, but if you really drop into your heart. So I was reading one of his books and he had a list of things and it was like, go for a coffee. I was like, uh, you know, six, uh, go for a run. I was like, no, don't want to do that. Write a book. 10. And my body was a 10. And I was like, mentally, no, 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 no. I don't want to write a book. Come on. That's like so much work. And my body was like, nope, it's a 10. And I wrote a book in two days because wow. my body was, yeah, it'll be coming out in a month it's paying attention to what actually feels good in your body as opposed to what you think you should be doing. Because we have all these ideas from a mental perspective. Writing a book is a beautiful example. Oh, it's going to take me years and it's going to be so hard and I'm, it's going to be such a suffering. But when I was in the flow of it, because my body was aligned to it, my body wanted to do it. It just flowed through. It wasn't a, oh, I have to sit here and contemplate it and brainstorm it. And I just wrote it. <laughs> and that is the power of being embodied because you can actually know so powerful in relationships as well. I've spent so much time in the fourth year of a six month relationship in the sixth year of a one-year relationship, 
where for so long that relationship wasn't aligned for me, but because of the survival chatter, chatter in my brain, I wasn't willing to let go of it. But when I actually dropped into my heart and gut, it was so clear. And that's the power of becoming embodied. It's not just we turn off the pain signals, but we can also turn off the pain signals or address the symptoms coming up because we are more aware of what's true for us at that heart gut level, as opposed to just spending all of our time in these narratives, because the narratives are highly focused on survival. What your heart and gut can see, what your intuition can see is beyond what those survival patterns will ever be able to see. And it's only through being in that heart and gut that we can peel back those layers of survival by creating enough safety and enough trust in ourselves that our body's like, okay, all right. So we don't have to control everything. We don't have to think through everything. We can actually just trust ourselves that I have this heart gut knowing and I know that it's going to be okay. Gosh, that sounds like it takes a lot of courage. <laughs> it is scary. It is scary. <laughs> it's, it's so scary. And at the same time, living the way that I do now, being intentional with being in my heart, being intentional with being in my intuition. It's not that my survival brain doesn't try to grab the wheel of the bus. Mm -hmm. It's not that I don't wake up sometimes with anxiety in my chest and my brain is like, oh my God, this is a problem. You have to think about this right now. It's that I'm aware enough to pause and say to myself, this is not the energy that gets to make decisions about stuff. It's just not. Like, this is not going to be my highest, most aligned, flowing action if it's coming from this desperate survival energy and attending to what is this desperate survival energy actually looking for. It wants to know that I'm safe. It wants to know that I'm loved. It wants to know that I've got my back and I can give those things to myself. And then when I am regulated, then, and only then can I make decisions and take inspired actions. But I refuse to take, I refuse to take actions from a survival place unless there's actually a fire or a tiger, right? Like I'm grateful <laughs> to my survival system to be on board. And I would never want to turn off my survival mechanism because, you know, life, I like living it. But I refuse to meet people mask to mask now. I will meet them heart to heart. I will meet them soul to soul. And is it scary? Yes. And am I afraid sometimes that people are going to reject me? Yes. But I would rather be rejected for who I am than loved for who I'm not. And that takes a lot of courage and a lot of work because it is very scary. But it's also, for me, the only way to live a fulfilled life. Yes. To be in my fullness and to be in my power and to accept that those people who resonate with me will resonate with me. And those who don't, won't. And that's okay. That I don't have to be loved by everyone. And that's it does sound like what I do is made up woo-woo, you know? Like yeah. I totally get that. 
it sounds like, like magic, even though it's science-based and there's a million peer-reviewed journal articles that explain the process. I choose to stand in that space, even though it feels scary, because I want other women just like me to be able to get out of pain because they deserve it. And I, I will stand in my power and be fully seen in that, even though it feels really scary. Mm. Well, Rose, I could ask you a million questions to jump off that, but I think we're approaching about the hour. So I think we should actually take a little bit of time to talk about your book. (laughs) Amazing. So excited about my book. Yes. So I, I wrote a book. It is with the editor this week. And basically it's called the recalibration effect. So the recalibration effect is the work that I use in my program. And it's everything that falls under recalibrating our mind, body, spirit, all of our system from danger back to safety. And now this book is not about what is the mind, body, <laughs> healing, right? It's yeah, not a million of books. <laughs> right. Here's the science of what this is. This is the book that you read when you've read all those other books and you're still in pain and you don't know why. So I share a lot about my personal story from a quite vulnerable perspective because I find it important for other people to be able to see me, to be able to see their path out of pain in mine. Because it was dodgy. <laughs> it was, there were some, there were some ups and downs, but down and downs in that story. And talking about the things that I've seen working with clients, what are some of the things that block us? Like the self-compassion piece, like this awareness of thought piece. And how to start working around those pieces. So this is not just, you know, what is mind-body healing and trying to prove that it's real. It's the book that you read when you've tried the others and it just hasn't worked. And a lot of this also comes back to the idea we were talking about that that pain signal is is valid. valid. And doing that inner healing work to turn off the pain signal, the pain signal turns off as a happy consequence of doing the internal healing regulation. And in the last number of years, when big stressful things have happened in my life, I'll have a symptom pop up for a few days, a few hours, a few minutes. And I look at it as I do care about the symptom because it's telling me something. Mm. It's a message. And I want to hear the message. And I'm not just saying, no, I don't want the message. This message has to go away. I need to make it go away right now. I want to know what, what is it that's triggering that insecurity or that danger in me? Sometimes I'll intuitively know what it is from, again, that heart gut place. Sometimes from a mind space, it's very obvious as well. Sometimes I'm not going to know, but it's usually pretty clear. Like one of the symptoms that I also had was uh, full body rashes. That's a, that's a thing that Ooh, sometimes can happen. Yeah, that's a, it's a fun one, that one. And when my mother passed away, I felt the adrenaline shoot down my body and I promptly broke out in a full body rash. Mm. 
And there was no part of me that's like, oh, why do I have a rash? There was no part of me that was mad that I had that symptom because I knew there was a knowing. I knew what it was and I knew it would go away and I knew it was temporary. And I knew it was my body saying, I need to distract you because the grief of this is too big. And so instead of thinking about grief, you're going to be thinking about itchy cream, right? Mm. I could see it as a protective mechanism. And so it wasn't scary to me. And it's the allowing yourself to have a symptom without the fear, without the judgment, without the blame, having compassion for yourself and allowing you to tend to this part of yourself that feels like, hey, this emotion is so big, it's going to flood the system. And for me in that moment, it was too big and it was going to flood the system. And so my body did a beautiful job holding the overflow. Now, obviously, that's something that you saw. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's learning to embody and be in love with your body and know that if your body is giving you a signal, there's a reason. And by tending to yourself, your body will turn that signal off. Your body, your brain, we're one holistic being. But allowing yourself to receive the message without the judgment and the blame. Because this is another thing about flares for people who have recovered. And with my clients, certainly it'll go from, I've had constant chronic pain for 10 years. Now I'm having weeks with no pain, but I still have pain for two days because I'm like, okay, all right, let's unpack it, unpack it. 20 minutes later, they're like, oh yeah, it's because they doubled my workload. I'm like, that was the insight that you needed. It's not a problem that you're in pain. Your brain is just telling you, hey, that felt unsafe. So instead of taking yourself down this rabbit hole of, oh, I'm failing in my healing healing journey because I've had a flare, just acknowledge what the flare is telling you and attend to that part of you and make that boundary or take that action or take time for yourself or whatever it is that you need. But the flare is always a message. And sometimes it's just a message of my nervous system has been conditioned for a long time that sitting is dangerous and I need to uncondition that. But oftentimes there's an emotional component that you can tend to. And then the signal will go off on its own. All right. So I'm going to have to wrap up now. Um, So last couple of questions. Aside from your book that you have coming out, are there any other like top resources that you would recommend to people? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at I period am period Rose period covenant. That'll also be in the notes somewhere. It I'm will sure. Be, yes. <laughs> um, and through there you can find different healing tips. I would also suggest you to check out the website at livebeyondpain.com. There is a free training on there around the recalibration effect. There are the programs that I offer. I offer a small group program exclusive to women. I also offer a one-on-one mentorship for both men and women. And the other thing I would encourage you to do if you're here is to go to that website and listen to the pain recovery journeys of others. Mm-hmm. This was a huge shift in my healing journey. If I can do it, you can do it. If they can do it, you can do it. So head over to that website, livebeyondpain.com, listen to their stories, 
And if you decide that you have some questions or you are interested in getting help to get out of pain, definitely reach out. I'm happy to be that support for you. Yes, I definitely recommend pain recovery stories. Just listen to them until it, as you said, it like broke the ceiling and in it came. Mm -hmm. So just, yeah. Okay, lucky last, your very last, lucky last parting piece of advice. If there's one thing you could leave listeners with, I usually ask maybe something you wish you'd heard kind of early in the journey or something when you were like really stuck. What would mm. To get the support that you need. You don't have to do this on your own, whether it's a coach, a mentor, a therapist, a friend, get the support you need invest your time, energy, and frankly, your money in yourself. It will be the best investment that you ever make mm -hmm. in your life. This is not something that you need to spend the next five years struggling through. When I got the support that I needed, I had my first pain-free moment in five weeks. Most clients that I work with have their first pain-free moment in one to three months. So if you are feeling stuck, and even if you're new, don't struggle on your own, get whatever support that you need. If that's working with me, that's amazing. If that's working with someone local, that's amazing. Give yourself the gift of having someone to help you co-regulate through these scary times because they are going to be scary. It is going to feel like things are falling apart and the emotions are super overwhelming and that's okay. That's safe. It's a lot easier when you have the support yeah therapy was the best thing I ever did for myself so I can second that one makes it easier for sure yeah. all right well thank you so much Rose for coming on and chatting it's been absolutely amazing